Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Papero. I'm joined by Eric Franchi and the one and the only Terry Kuaja from Luma Partners. Terry, thank you for being here. Ari, Eric, a delight to be with you too. It's kind of amazing that we haven't had you on yet. You're always like the first choice of podcast guests. Well, a deity one for sure. Yeah, yeah. So this week, Ad Tech God, who's our friend of a pod, he uh, debuted his podcast, which I recommend you listen to. And it featured you as well. So we're going to kind of maybe take this conversation a little bit of a different direction. I'm a big fan, and uh, I listen to uh, every episode. So some housekeeping. Um, So this is the second week we are debuting our new segment called Justify Your Existence, where we interview small ad tech, martech startups, and they have to justify their existence. This week is with Openary. So please listen after the interview with uh, Terry, and you'll hear that great little segment. All right. So... Everyone always talks to you, Terry, about the M&A market. Is it coming back? Who's the targets? Well, it's consolidation, the usual shtick. We want to kind of talk about different stuff um, because I personally, you know, was involved with you. You you, you represented Beeswax through our sale of Comcast. And, you know, my main use of you was as a therapist. Um, so you're my personal therapist. We would talk every once in a while, sometimes talk about money, but mostly talk about my feelings and how I wanted to cry and lose my baby and things like that. So what? tell me about the perspective, like your role as therapist and how uh, CEOs feel and act during the sale process. Well, you know, if you think about it, right, this uh, we're talking about a 0.1% of the population, right? Because we're not just talking about entrepreneurs. We're talking about the 3% of entrepreneurs that have, you know, a successful exit. So it's a subset of a subset. High-performing individuals, uh, these are people that, if they're successful, uh, they love what they do, they're passionate about it, and think about it. This, if it's their first or even if it's their second exit, it's probably the single most important event of their life, you know, next to their marriage, or their kids, you know, on the personal side. So it matters, and getting it right matters. So just think about it. The the, the poor person, uh, he or she, has just built this company over usually over years, blood, sweat, tears, dealt with those, you know, venture capitalists. Oh my God. And, and managed their board, you know, managed customers, all of those machinations. And here they are at, a, at the precipice, and you've got a company that's much bigger, much more powerful, very professional in terms of how they do these acquisitions. And it's probably, you know, they haven't done a lot of these. And so there are a vast range of emotions that the poor CEO and founders have to go. Right. The buyer has a whole team. The buyer does this multiple times a year, probably. And the buyer can walk away in most cases, right? So the key is to come at this opportunity slash, you know, challenge dispassionately. It is very difficult for a founder to do it dispassionately. Look, it's that's not to not that I didn't mean to go here, but it's probably the single best sort of value proposition in terms of the pitch of why you use a knowledgeable and experienced intermediary is because I've done this hundreds and hundreds of, like to me, it's not that I don't care. I do care and I represent my clients and want the best for them, but I've just done this so many times that it's kind of like second nature. Whereas for them, it's like on the first or second or third time when I get a founder who says, oh, well, you know, I've had like four exits. I'm like, great. I had 400. Like, trust me, uh, you know. You've seen every problem, right? And every variation of every problem and you've dealt with it. You've just, and it's just experience. You just learn how to manage it. And it's as important as the knowledge about the deal making, which I'm sure we'll get into, 
there's a lot of psychology involved here, right? And and just working with the CEO to say, it's okay, and we'll get through this because every deal is not a straight line. In fact, not a single deal I've ever done is a straight line. They're all roller coaster rides, some of them existential. Sometimes, you know, the wheels of the roller coaster go off the track and they're you're right. dangling and you somehow, you know, bring it back. So you've got to have that sort of normalizing, leveling approach to it. Otherwise, you'll never get through it. Eric, what was it like selling Undertone? Can you relate to this? So Undertone was somewhat unique in that it was a a 15-year-old business and, you know, had like one like fundraising round, which was to to private equity. So I think for us, it was was a little unique, but I can echo a lot of what what Terry said in that, um, you know, for me professionally, it was you know, the most important thing that I, you know, had ever been part of, ever, ever contemplated. I was wholly unprepared for the process in terms of how many times it like seemingly died, seemingly came back to life. Like, you know, the ups and downs were quite intense. And, you know, we don't need to get into too much of like founder therapy and, and stuff like that. But, you know, um, the, the, st- the stuff that they don't prepare you for and Terry didn't even mention was, um, you know, sort of like, what do you do after the sale? You know, how do you manage like, you know, your own sort of psychology and what you do from here, whether you stay at the company, whether you don't stay at the company, we can go down a, a lot, of, a lot of rabbit holes, but yeah, I can, I can say like everything Terry said, like happened over the course of a you know, very contracted time frame, And it was, um, it was stressful. Let's talk after the sale. That's a rich topic. Uh, so one day, you know, money shows up in your bank account, and the next day you have to, like, sign up for an employment contract at, like, a really large company. Pretty weird. It's like it's like the analogy I use with other entrepreneurs is it's like sending your kids to college. The uh, You're just like, you, get, you drop them off, you come home, and you're like, okay, what now? This is interesting. Now, now what? Now what? Now what? <laughs> it was to me, and again, I'd love to hear from both of you, it was the most anticlimactic thing ever because you know it's going to happen, right? You've been like pushing towards this for months, like you know the close date. It's just like numbers on, you know, on 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 a screen in terms of, you know, closing and everything like that. It was so anticlimactic and I was just like that's it. Well, yeah. I, I what I you know, often I think what founders find when they get through especially if it's a very successful exit that's got like sort of life-changing economics associated with it doesn't change your life in the way that you think it will. Like, it's not like you go, well, I mean, I suppose some go out and buy a Ferrari or whatever, but but most people, you know, it doesn't materially change except for one thing. And that is that black cloud that always sat in the back of your mind, the fear about, you know, am I going to make it right? That basically it just clears parts and it dissipates. And so you're like, oh, okay. Like the pressure that kind of gnawing negative anxiety dissipates, and that can be super empowered. Yes, you got to deal with boredom, and you know what's my purpose now that I'm no longer a fighting, striving entrepreneur looking for an exit. Nope, I got the exit. But at least from that point on, you don't have to worry about those elements. And when that worry goes away, I find some folks can really channel that into interesting things. Okay. Yeah, I have to agree with the uh, the cloud thing. Um, there's another side of that, though, which is that um, many entrepreneurs enjoy being CEOs. So you have a team, you know, at Beeswax, I had a team of 100 people, really enjoyed a lot of them, you know, uh, doing my job. Suddenly, I didn't have that job anymore. 
that was an adjustment um, in terms of like, you know, day-to-day life. What, what, what I tell, you know, entrepreneurs, in particular first or second, that like younger entrepreneurs, is I said, take, take the long view, man. Like you built this great little company. It was, you attracted the attention of this acquirer. They acquired you. You are now going to spend, you know, one to three years at that company and maybe longer. Look, don't get me wrong. Some people fashion amazing careers at large, but most entrepreneurs, they're kind of like the, you know, they want to build stuff. They'll spend their time and get out. What I tell them is crush every phase of it. So be a great acquired company founder. In other words, be an evangelist for your acquirer. Get out there and do And I know that's unnatural. I know you're not used to reporting to people. Don't worry about it. It's not forever. And be a great acquirer so that when, and by the way, a network like hell. So so you think about, you know, uh, folks like Matt Turner, right? Dude was 18 when he started his company, 22 when he sold it. And he went to Google. And after a year, he called me up and he said, I'm out of here. It's like, it's like gnawing at me. I just want to do other stuff. And I said, take a chill pill is what I advise. And maybe just, I know you have a three-year contract. Stay one more year. I mean, just, just do the two years. And, you know, and by the way, call Neil. Don't, like, don't, don't go around their backs. Call him. And he did. He called Neil and he goes, I want to leave. And Google made it worth his while to stay. And I said, and network like hell with all those great engineers at Google so that when you do leave and you go do your next big thing, you'll have this vast ecosystem of folks with whom you can, like, you know, uh, leverage. And that, of course, you know, that's an extreme case because he went on to do another startup in the cancer data space and sold it for 2.6 billion dollars so yeah that's that's quite a story um one of the things i think that is interesting is that in the deal process when you're getting closer to finishing a deal you start negotiating what your job is going to be because often the acquirer doesn't have a job for you it's not you don't fit in they're not going to make you ceo of your acquired company unless it's private equity like any advice on how to shape the job that you're going to be given in the new co? It varies uh, whether your services are tech, and it varies in terms of what your role was at the startup. Some CEOs are more product-centric, and, and they may get a bigger job running a broader product organization. That, as you well know, can be nightmarish at large companies because you get involved in all kinds of politics that have nothing to do with product. Yep. And other ones, you're often the... CEO can be the lead salesperson, in which case they kind of need you to stay. And and you pretty much in in those instances, you just keep rolling. And 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 what I tell people is that the perfect deal is a happy seller and a happy buyer. Now that's what I realize that's a that's a tough nut to crack and get both of them happy. But you want them as happy as possible. So what you don't want to do is you negotiate a great deal, and the minute it closes, you're like suckers. You're right. No, stay there and make it worthwhile for them. Make it be a successful acquisition. Because the difference when you go to raise financing for your second startup and your third and maybe your fourth, you know, whether it's the financing or let's say fast forward five years and you're in MA discussions with your second startup and that buyer says, well, wait a second, you bailed on the last one or you shot on the last acquire. Like, just don't shit on the acquire. Look, shit on there. You can shit on every other company on the face of the earth. Don't shit on the company that just gave you hundreds of millions of dollars. That's a, I can think of some uh, exceptions to that rule, but yeah, well, I get what you're saying. Been, <laughs> Let's not name names. 
<laughs> but um, what what mistakes do people make? Like I've I've just seen so many times where someone gets acquired and the CEO has sort of a do nothing job with like a weird title. Is that like a classic mistake? If you negotiate a job with no direct reports and just sort of you're a floater, well, that's not going to. I mean, no entrepreneurial personality is gonna gonna want to do that. You may not be thrilled with the operating line job with responsible reports and business building objectives that they give you or you you have, but that's a lot better than just being a uh, 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 you know just you know. All right. So stepping back to the whole process, what do CEOs screw up like in terms of? the process of selling their companies? Where do, the, where, where do you say, oh my God, I can't believe I took this person on as a client? So there, there's a variety of sort of areas in which, you know, they can they can go wrong. One is try to balance the whole greed versus fear thing. You know, lack of self-awareness of, you know, what the company's worth. You know, some people think, well, you know, here are the market multiple years where the last few deals are done, but I'm different. You sure you are. Another mistake people make is, they just assume that there'll be a buyer for their company. The thought that there is a strategic company interested in buying your company for a, you know, call it a strategic valuation multiples, you just cannot take that, that as a given. And so sometimes people say, well, you know, inbound interest, real inbound interest, not tire kicker, but true inbound interest is a rarity and respect it. And which is not to say take the deal, but it's saying, recognize that this doesn't happen every single and you should at least, you know, take it seriously. I've, I've advised companies in situations where the client has not taken my advice in both sides of things. One where I think they, sh and, and this is the sort of the normal one you would imagine, where the intermediary says, "Client, you should really take this deal. This is a good deal." I mean, because right. again, it's their baby, so all they're looking at is, "Well, I think it's worth more than that." Okay, well, that's totally subjective. I look at it with a combination of the lens of market multiples. Well, what are people paying right now? Knowledge of the buyer. Mm, I don't know. I think they're pretty stretched at that valuation. Maybe we can get 10% more, but I don't think it's a step function difference. And most importantly, in, in particular in our space, where there's a lot of moving parts relating to sort of trends and, and developments in the ecosystem is, mm, you know, but if you don't sell, then they're either going to buy that guy or that. So knowing that, oh, you should really take that offer. And I've had CEOs go, no, I'm not going to. And you know what? I don't appreciate that advice. I'm like, honestly, it's coming. I think that's the right. And then to see it go pear-shaped afterward right. and they do that, it, that's probably the worst sort of situation like that. Like for years, there were many companies in ad tech whose sole exit was like, oh, well, Google will buy us at some point. And then Google just stopped buying companies. It's like, exactly. you, you don't know. You don't know when the window is going to close, right? And we don't know either, but we probably know a lot more than, than, the, than the client does just because they see one thing and we see hundreds, if not a thousand of them, and we're having all those conversations. The flip side, by the way, and this happens too, is where a client will get an offer and they'll say, yeah, I'm going to take it. I'm like, dude, you could, you could get a lot more. I'd hold out right. if I were you. I mean, I, I said, let's play this out. You know, what are... The chances that 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 you're going to be displaced, you know, I think the probability is quite low, and I think you'll get much more. And there've been a couple of cases where I've sort of, you know, and listen, I'm just the agent; they are the principal, so I'm going to give them my best advice objectively, regardless of where it falls on their perspective. 
and they get to make the decision. But it's funny. In some cases, I've said, mm, you can get more. And then when it proves out, they're like, you know, we could have got more. I'm like, hmm, where have I heard that before? Well, a really common scenario, and I've seen this with entrepreneurs, I bet, Eric, you've seen this with portfolio companies, is they're doing well and they get one inbound interest from an acquirer who's just sniffing around. And then suddenly they're faced with this question, like, should we hire a banker or not? So I'm giving you a softball here, Terry. And I think this is pretty much what happened to me and you. Like, one interesting party, should I hire a banker? Should I start a process? Or is that just opening Pandora's box? Maybe the biggest mistake, going back to the mistakes you mentioned, just to just to hark on that for uh, 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 for a second, is clients will come to us and go, we have inbound. Okay. You know, to tell me about that. They'll describe it. I'm like, that's not inbound. That's not inbound. That's not actionable inbound. Like, like What's actionable you know, inbound? Actionable inbound usually involves uh, two aspects. It has to be qualified. So a mid-level corp dev person saying, you know, we could... Uh, this could be interesting for us. We should buy you. Means nothing. Okay. Absolutely nothing. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a written term sheet, but but you have to have some price discovery. Like, where is it buying you? What if the answer is for five dollars versus for five hundred million? I mean, you know, so there has to be some level of price discovery. Otherwise, it's not inbound. And second, that inbound, that price discovery has to be at a level that either you could contemplate or or within stretching distance could contemplate doing a deal. Because companies say, well, we got inbound. These guys are interested. Right, at $100 million. Your board said they wouldn't sell for less than 250 That's not inbound. Because often uh, a client will say, hey, we got this, so now we can go out to market with that. I said, no, you can't go out to market and cry wolf. If you're not prepared to take the 100 that's not actionable inbound. In other words, you can't act on it, so it's not inbound. You can't leverage it for that purpose. Now, going back to your original question, when clients come to me or potential clients come to me, and by the way, I have a lot, I would say 90% of my conversations are not in engaged situations. So it's just companies that, you know, you know, they ping me and they go, hey, um, Adobe uh, was asking about this. How should I think about that? And we're like, oh, yeah. Uh, well, who is it from Adobe? Oh, that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we can give them rhyme and verse and what, probably what that means and a little bit about uh, their system because every company has a different sort of modus of how they approach corporate development. And there are signals that you can learn and you can sort of piece together what how they're thinking about it based on who said what and how they approach it. Right. Like if they bring in product people to meet with you, if the corp dev team suddenly has a meeting with a bunch of product people, that's that's a pretty good sign, right? You know, product engineering strategy. It, and again, it depends on the buyer. So it's good to have this encyclopedic and experience-based knowledge of how they play and what signs. And, and by the way, what we tell people, we do, we give a lot of advice, what we call over-the-shoulder advice, which is to say, we're not engaged yet because we tell them, look, somebody shows up at your door and you have a banker, you're for sale. So they'll say, hey, let's, let's engage you. And we're like, whoa, slow down. Right. Tell us about the situation, which, by the way, was exactly what happened with you, Ari, because, you know, you called me in the summer and you go, these guys said this. I'm like, we said, and if you recall, is the way I recall the set of conversations, I said, we said, OK, well, that's good. That's interesting. Maybe it's actionable. Uh, we'll see. And, you know, we gave you over the we we're saying, well, test it with this. And we like to put them through gates and that qualifies their interest. If you say no, if you say, well. But, you know, I need this. And then 
they do that, well, then that further qualifies them. And in your instance, we got to a sufficient comfort that there was interest that we felt could be actionable that we then did what we call a market check, where we we got enough confidence to, first of all, get engaged and and then have those other conversations. And in your instance, Ari, I'm pleased, to, uh, well, you're pleased to know <laughs> that, of course, it was one of those parties. We got three additional parties who wanted to buy the company and one of them substantially outbid the yeah. initial uh, interest. So, so just to, I won't disclose any names, but the, we had a qualified interested party who kind of kicked off our process and kicked off with Terry, but it turned out that they were the low bidder. So it's interesting. Yeah, interesting but they, but they were qualified. Like, but, but if you recall, we had a conversation in June or July. Yeah. And you said you relayed a conversation, and I said, okay, but that's not qualified yet, right? That's right. that's inbound, but it's not qualified inbound. It's not it's not actionable inbound, certainly. And so you know, over the course of August and September and into October, as I recall, you then did certain things with them to qualify their interest. And then ultimately we got to October and the bidding war started and right. away we went. And the original was the low ball. One little note for uh, anyone meeting with Terry. One of the best things about meeting with Terry in person is that at the Luma office, they put your name on the walls. It says, Luma welcomes Ari Papero. It's very nice. It I feels like the, you're an executive or something. I got that idea 20 years ago from Akama. It's a good idea. Uh, it's a great idea, right? Yeah, it's great touch. Two sort of quick questions on on this subject. Can you ballpark what percentage of this inbound that we're talking about, you know, CEO receives, you know, some sort of inbound unqualified that comes in cold actually materializes from a deal versus uh, one that there's, a, you know, some sort of business relationship between the companies? Single digit percentage. Yeah. So cold. Single digit of cold. Single digit of That turns cold. into something. Uh, that that turns into something. So so one of the things we we tell people is look, you know, you should not meet your bride on the way up the aisle in the church at your wedding. Like that that's not the time to do it. And by the way, if it's called, it's it's it mean look, there's a low probability uh that's gonna manifest, which is why we highly advise people, look, we tell them, look, the MA process doesn't start with the inbound and it doesn't certainly doesn't start when you all of a sudden decide you want to sell your business. Like it, this is not something you do last minute. You know, we say business development is a, the best path, corporate development. And so, you know, odds are, and in particular in this ecosystem where everyone's connected with one another, you're probably doing business with the acquirer, right? There's some integration, there's an API. They're able to see your technology in action. And the reason why that's important is because, you know, the motive, and this is getting into, you know, motivations of buyers, but motivations of buyers, they're essentially, they're, they work at a large corporation, right? And their responsibility, or at least part, some of them, is to do successful acquisitions. And for them, it's not upside. It's not getting something that ended up being worth 10x what they paid for. That's good. Don't get me wrong. But that doesn't really affect their careers that much. Buying something that ended up being worth 10% of what they paid, that can lose them their job. So my point is, corporate development people tend to be risk averse. And anything that you can do or demonstrate that would de-risk an acquisition will make them feel all much more prone about doing the deal. 
So, right. so integrations, we are already working together. Like, well, we don't have to even diligence that. We know how that works. So it really just then becomes down to a build versus partner versus buy decision. And when they kind of understand the economics and the, and the workflow, it de-risks it for them. And by the way, de-risking, if you plug less risk into a financial equation into a DCF, it means higher value. So they can afford to pay more and stretch because they know the downside is limited. And that is the key to the psychology of the buyer, which is a, almost entirely opposite of the psychology of the seller. So on the buyer side, we talked a little bit about what CEOs do to mess up deals. What are bad behaviors of buyers? A pattern we see frequently is the arrogance of buyers, especially big, capable buyers, to say, well, we could just build that. Of course, and, and yes. the answer is, no, no. Well, and we, by the way, if we just point to the fact that you have 6,000 you know, uh, engineers, yes, in theory, you could just build that. But in practice, we know that just that dog don't hunt, right? Either you won't shift the appropriate resources towards it, human or capital, or you won't get there in time. The market's here now. If you want a solution and your these other competitors are crushing you, you need something yesterday. And so turns out here's this team of, you know, entrepreneurial oriented people, which by the way, I'm of the view that if you're a big tech company in particular, you need this refresh of entrepreneurial blood into your ecosystem to just, you know, stay on the leading edge of things. So yes, you can get to a market faster. Yes, these are a great team that understand all the machinations of that particular use case. But also, it's just the people, just the mindset of that type of employee that you want to have in your organization at times of highly dynamic change. What about deal red flags? Like what, when you're in the middle of the conversations between buyer and seller, what can a buyer say that makes you as a banker say, oh, these guys aren't serious or we should probably stay away? Personnel changes. They get a new person in, they say, let's take a pause. We have to reassess. Yeah. Because, you know, you have this dynamic at the buyer. Most large companies set up a two-team acquisition team. you got the sponsor, which will often have product people inputting as to whether this makes sense. And by the way, sometimes you'll get a, a product person, often in the form of a CTO or a CPO, that has an attitude of not invented here. And, right. and and so not only does is that a plague of the you know large tech companies, it can also be a plague of smaller tech companies who are like you know proud and yeah you know, trade desk Twitter those are companies that like nope nope we, we want to build it and so that's fine but identifying that early is a red flag because often they'll just want to learn more and not end up filling on the deal. You broke our rule of not mentioning Twitter. Like we've, uh, <laughs> I think we we tr we try to avoid mentioning Twitter, and we always yeah, fail at that. We could probably talk to you forever about these subjects, uh, but I want to go through the news of the week. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with talking about Google Antitrust uh, and the Trade Desk's latest moves around floor pricing. So hold on one moment. All right, we're back. So Google Antitrust. So the first Google Antitrust trial starts next week. This is not the ad tech trial. This is the search trial that we've been talking about for a while. So the allegation really roughly is that Google is using its market power to buy the default search placement on Apple devices and other devices like that. It's an interesting situation because if they lose this trial, it could have sort of a pretty immediate and big effect on the revenue given the profitability of search. Terry, have you been following this? Any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, I look. I've spent I've spent way more time on the ad tech uh, machinations than 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 on the search one. If I'm Mr. Google, my highest priorities are you know search and YouTube. Right. Those are those, those are my sacred cows. Yeah, and I'll do that, almost anything and everything to protect those. So I think you'll see them go full bore defense on search. I think. Uh, that the on the on the ad tech side of things, and by the way, you know they're piling up on ad tech, right? There, the Texas state one. There's another state one. There's a federal one, if not two. Uh, there's an EU one. There's a UK one. Yeah, uh, I've heard that there's like another. There's like a German one brewing. So everyone's kind of ganging up on the ad tech one. And and if you ask me, the search one. Google search didn't get their 90%, 91% in Europe or globally uh, market share by coercion. I think they no. earned it. It's a better, it's a pro- better product. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a verb. <laughs> no one said, well, I'll bang that and get back to you. You know, it's like, you know, it's, so, so I think that it's true. Now, now, depending on the antitrust thesis, because, you know, we have this old construct of antitrust on consumer harm, and that sadly kind of doesn't fly in a world with in a freemium world. So they have to sort of figure out what the thesis is. And quite frankly, I'm not really sure I've heard a good deliberation. I've heard what Lena Khan and others have said, but I haven't really heard a thesis. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Microsoft antitrust case, which is operating system to browser a little. Either way, I guess some some there's a strain of thought that I've talked to actually some former Googlers about that if this case doesn't go that well and they think they may lose, they may sacrifice ad tech, try to combine the two issues and just say, okay, we'll drop this case and we'll give you a win and we'll spin out the ad tech assets that's the way you're asking in the other case. We'll settle the other case. Well, like, like I said, I think they're sacred cows. They're, they're going to protect their sacred cows, right? Because that's where the, it's, yeah. it's the same reason why people rob banks because that's where the money is. Uh, <laughs> so, 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 so they're, they're going to protect that. And remember, what are the levers? That antitrust can utilize. Usually, it's to block a deal. What's right. the search deal? What's Just the search this Apple deal? search distribution deal, because yeah. they own Android, right? Oh, so you would you would force Apple to like basically make allow people to choose their search engine when they first install their phone or something like that, right? And and I think that would have a somewhat de minimis effect on. And anyway, my point is that there are there are limited because it wasn't an acquisition, right? Whereas, you know, YouTube and AdTech were acquisitions. Now, they were acquisitions a long time ago. A long time ago. But they are different businesses. And, you know, that has more echoes of Microsoft on, in the sense that the utilization of one was coercively and, you know, influencing uh, the product choice of, of another. And in the case of AdTech, I think, you know, we've now seen the arguments, you know, delineated. I have a nuance thought about how Google might approach this, okay. uh, but it's along the lines of what uh, what you said, Art, which is even within ad tech, there are assets that I think they would rather keep. I think they'd rather keep the DFP business because that gives them ties into all the publishers and that just allows them to perpetuate more and more uh, products going forward. If there was one division that Google would probably not be so dismayed parting with, it would be ad tech. So 
not GAM, subset of GAM, at it. Because third parties, their lowest margin business by far, it is probably the source of 85% of their privacy headache. I think they'll defend search on its own merit. I think within ad tech, they will tie it to privacy and say, look, guys, you're coming at me with all of these things. And, you know, privacy and antitrust is like the two blades of a sword. You cut one way and you help one and hurt the other and vice versa when you move the sword in the other direction. So I think they could say, guys, can we talk about a holistic solution here? We'll help you on this privacy stuff. Let's face it. The whole reason why cookie deprecation has been delayed as long as it has been is because of the UK antitrust threat. So they're going to protect antitrust first. And the way they do that is they say, guys, take addict, you know, and, and by the way, all of us in ad tech know that eh, that's not much of a give, but let me tell you something. We're talking about the electorate. And by the way, there's an election coming up next year. I mean, the Biden administration couldn't claim we defeated big tech by forcing a divestiture and turns out well, okay, really? Think that I, I don't buy that. I, I'll, I don't buy that. But the reason I don't buy that is because adx without GAM is useless. And almost all the allegations of the antitrust are based around fundamentally the monopoly in GAM and the fact that they could do whatever they want to GAM publishers and they can't leave. Look, search is fine without GAM. It's GAM and adx together. Well, let's just say the antitrust case, the federal antitrust case, the remedy they're asking for is a spin out of adx and GAM. Specifically, they're not asking for DV360 spin out. They're not asking for anything else. So we have a banker on the on the show. Okay. So Terry, you just got your biggest contract ever. You're the banker in charge of spinning out AdX and GAM. What's it worth? How do you get the valuation? Uh, it's, it's worth a lot of money. Somewhere between 300 and 500 million. Billion. 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 Let's, how do we get there? So GAM... I'm, I have an educated guess that GAM is like a $500 million SaaS business, somewhere in that range. Um, it's probably very profitable. Educated guess. It might not, I might be off by 100, 200 in one direction or another. Okay. I think that's a pretty good estimate based on my knowledge of the business. Not AdX, no transactions in that. That's just CPMs paying that penny, two penny ad serving fee. It's about $500 million. So like $10 billion. Right. So that's what you would value that at $10 billion? Yeah, somewhere between... Between, you know, 7 and $10 billion, yep. So then what's AdX worth? And how, how much volume goes through AdX? Do we, I don't think we know, but AdX is the largest ad exchange and the programmatic world is about $25 billion, according to eMarketer. So maybe they're transacting 10 to $15 billion a year in, on AdX. Does that sound right? So that sounds like a 2x trade desk. So call it $60 billion. So that's $75 billion, $70, 75 Billion dollars, okay. Right. So, so when I said three to five hundred, I meant that's with DFP. That's that's the whole. Yeah, GAM, DFP, GAM. Yeah, I was yeah, using yeah. GAM, DFP. So the problem is though, if it was spun out, they would lose a lot of their liquidity, right? They would lose the Google Ads liquidity that comes through, like all the demand, right? And they would lose all the tricky little things they've done to no, boost they demand. Lose it right away. No, right. The, the, I mean, they would have one hundred percent of the party. Remember. People talk about who would buy it. No one's going to buy it. It would be a spin-out to Alphabet shareholders. Right. So immediately, it would have a large and diverse shareholder base of all those major institutions. It would be sizable enough that it would be a, a macro cap tech stock, which if you understand the structure of the buy side, 
means most of those big institutions would need to maintain holding it. Because basically the way the buy side works is if there's a big company out there, you probably have to own it. And yeah, it would so, instantly be added to in indexes. Instantly right. be added to indexes, uh, indices. It probably would, that you know, it might hurt uh, the trade desk a little bit, but um, uh, it would just be, you know, yet another competitor. But remember, other companies would have to take away Google as a client. They make it a little bit more competitive, but at the end of the day, they would be the largest player. They'd be much larger uh, than the trade desk. And I think they have a good chance of any of retaining that that uh, that business. It'd be pretty fascinating. It'd be sort of like a little bit of a baby bell situation where the spin out could act monopolistic as well. And it'd be pretty hard to stop them because they would still have the gamma monopoly. Well, what I've heard is, is, you know, what does that actually do, you know, from the from the objectives of the antitrust folks, other than declare a win? Does it really change pricing dynamics? You know, right now, does a trade desk versus Google change between the trade desk versus, you know, spin out? I don't know. It's yeah. hard. That one's hard to forecast. So a de more than a decade ago, when you were the banker on the deals that built this, right, Invite and AdMeld, um, was there any like glimmer of an idea that a decade later this would be happening? I mean, you know, I would assume that folks were doing the, um, you know, the probability set of, you know, all sorts of uh, potential outcomes, but like this level of regulatory scrutiny and potentially, you know, you know, having, having action, was that like, did, did anybody handicap that at the time? Let's remember that 12 years ago, that's right, 13 years ago when we did Invite, I went to Google in the fall of 2009, so now 14 years ago, and said, congratulations, you just launched this thing called Addict, which nascent, right? Just de novo. And I said, think about it. You, you, you built an exchange, and an exchange needs buyers and sellers. You've got plenty of sellers. You've got plenty of supply, your own supply, right? GDC has got enough supply to make this a successful exchange if we can actually get programmatic you know, off the ground more than just the nascent right media uh, transaction. And I said, but the buyers are not used to buying programmatically. So you, uh, Google, need an on-ramp. And they're like, okay. And I said, an on-ramp would take the form of a DSP. And so we got to, and it was really a couple of choices. And ultimately, they decided on invite and the rest of the state's history. But that got them the on-ramp. And they had the exchange. They built the exchange. They didn't worry about supply. But then we had, a, you know, the next year, we had another conversation, we said, right, but you should have a diversified supply and maybe take a competitor out of the market. And then that led to, to, to Edmill. At the time, in, before Invite, I mean, Invite, for the whole year up to its acquisition, did 10 million of gross revenue. I think it did a million and a half of net revenue. It, it was so tiny. It was small. Did we project that programmatic would be doing 100 Fifty billion dollars? No, I don't think anybody had that in their in their ecosystem, other than saying that this could bring real weight to this notion of programmatic ad sales and bring heft to it and scale and and real technology. And if it works, it's going to work on a large scale. Turns out, enormous. So I could give some color here because I was on the deal team on the buy side at Google. Um, so it was really led by my friend Scott Spencer. So I don't want to take credit for it, but I was involved in it and. Um, 
I think we really didn't understand what was going on, honestly. <laughs> we at DoubleClick on the buy side, which I ran on the product side, we had this sort of strategy of bundling. That was the strategy. So we had DFA, which was the dominant ad server, and then we would add DoubleClick Search to it. And then we had DoubleClick Rich Media to it. And every time we added a new product, the customers liked it more, they paid more, and it was really tough on the competitors because they re there was a big advantage of only having one buy side platform. And we saw DSP as another segment. That's how we thought about it. We thought, like, yeah. hey, we're hearing from our DFA customers that they're using Invite or MediaMath or whomever as a DSP that's threatening to us. And also, we should be able to grab that segment, too. We did not think, I didn't think, I certainly didn't think, that it was going to be a multi-billion dollar media opportunity where we would take, you know, 10, 15 percent of tens of billions of dollars running through it. And that didn't really evolve till the whole thing got rebuilt a couple years after I left and sort of the Google team kind of took over D360 and made it go kind of hyperscale. But it was well, a great story. And a fun little anecdote, and it harks back to our initial conversation. So it's November of 2009. I have that conversation with Neil Mohan and his product team at Google. And he goes, okay, interesting. It just so happens that Invite Media had, in September of that year, agreed to sell itself to a company called Omniture, which was acquired by Adobe. They put that deal yep. on the, on hold while they sort of just got organized and got made the acquisition. They came back in December and said, okay, now we, we, we want to come back and, and acquire you again. So Invite Media is now looking for a banker. And they said, okay, we're going to we're gonna bring in five firms. And I was at a different firm, a predecessor to Deluma. And so we're going to have a bake-off. It's got to, which, by the way, is the dumbest thing that a company could do. You're now telling five different investment banks all your secrets. It's like the worst thing ever. Uh, and not just because it's competition. So so we come in, I come in, and I said, so here, I, I was waving a, a blue book. I said, here's a blue book. It's got tabs in it. It's got nice graphs. And in here is a story that says, we're great. We've got a bunch of deals in this space, and we could be uh, your good representative. And we work at, you know, all this kind of stuff. I said, in other words, it's the same as the other four, okay? It's like, in other words, everyone's qualified, right? Instead of going through this tab book, I tossed it aside. I said, let me tell you about my conversation with Google. And I got through that, and they all looked at each other like, cancel the rest of the meeting. This is let's just go. Let's just go. I mean, yeah. Again, the provision of investment banking services is a commodity. I'll repeat that. Commodity, right? Because... Because, you know, it's a high-priced commodity. It's a valuable commodity. Don't get me wrong. That said, it is substitutable. Many people could do that. You need someone who understands, you know, what's going on in the ecosystem and the psychology and the rationale of the buyer, what they're trying to accomplish. Anyway, so. Yeah, I'm not sure that brings back memories. I, I mean, once again, like anecdotes. I'm not sure back in the day before they were acquired by Adobe had no clue about digital advertising whatsoever. Um, I went to their summit. They had a special meeting where I met with, like, their corp dev execs and all these other execs. I like whiteboarded how cookies work, how everything works. And they were just like drooling at the end of that meeting. And I feel like I, I, I left that meeting saying, wow, I think I gave them too much info. <laughs> I think I just made myself a problem rather than a solution. But um, anyway, we could do this for hours. We should maybe have a part two, uh, but we're out of time. So this was an amazing conversation. Terry, thank you so much for being here. Please stand by for Justify Your Existence, our new segment with OpenAry after break. So, Terry, thanks again for being here. Thanks, Ari. Thanks, Eric. Cheers. Thank you.
Welcome to Marketectures Justify Your Existence, where we ask our lead stage ad tech and martech startups to tell us why we should care about what they're building. Today we have Cornelius Frey from, how do you say the name of this company? Openary? Openary, like opinion, o- not fit. Openary. Okay, so it's O P I N A R Y, Openary. So thanks for being here. Um, why don't we start out easy? Like, what's the size of the company, what number of employees, where are you based, and what funding have you raised? Sure. Opinary, uh, there's about uh, 30, meaning 29 of us, sitting mostly in Berlin, Germany. We actually just merged with a U.S. Indian ad tech company called Affinity. So life's going to get much more busy, much more hectic. Raised some VC financing uh, before that, but are looking forward to a more global trajectory from here on. Do you do business globally currently? We are just launching our offering in Asia. And yes, we already work with big publishers in the US, uh, like Yahoo, CNBC, Times, and others. Great. Uh, so what do you do? Opinary runs little polling widgets. Uh, you know, your audience probably seen them around, like a little uh, speedometer needle asking your opinion in the middle of an article. Say, you know, CNBC is running an article on electric vehicles. And we'll ask you, the user, why are you interested in buying that? for environmental reasons, for economic reasons, for other things. And what we achieve with that is actually an incredibly high engagement rate, turning passive users into interactive users. You know, engagement rates between 10 and 20%. Why? Because users love not just voicing their opinion, but seeing how do they compare to other people. Am I the lone winner out here in the corner? Am I like everybody else? And then we translate that super high engagement into conversions for signups, newsletters, app downloads on the one hand, but also into relevant first-party data and social demographics that helps publishers run much more profitable campaigns. So the customer is the publisher in most cases? Exactly. We run the software as a service offering for publishers. And so are they doing these uh, surveys for themselves to get signups to their newsletters, or are they doing it in conjunction with a given advertiser? So they get signups for their own newsletters or even sell subscriptions, get leads for subscriptions. But the data, the first party data we collect at scale, so then typically collect intent and social demographic signals for over 70% of their audience over time. That's what they use to uh, run better programmatic and seller-defined audience campaigns. So they all will have invested a lot of money in you know building their first party data architecture. And now it's the question how to fill the pipes with meaningful first party data. That's what we help them with. Interesting. Okay. And what's the business model? We charge a software as a service fee to uh, the publishers, and they then use the data. We we have joint controllers, but the publishers use and monetize the data, capture the uptick on uh, subscriptions and signups, and get the editorial value out. So one thing is different to most players in the ad tech ecosystem. What we found, newsrooms love this because it actually makes the product more engaging Newsroom starts out owning the spot, and then we deliver upticks for audience development teams and uh, uh, the programmatic sales teams. How self-service is the product? Can I launch a new survey on my own without any graphic design, just type in the questions? Exactly. No much work needed. We turn these polls into very graphically appealing experiences, like the speedometer I mentioned, or you know, multiple choice. And there's a lot of control you can have as a publisher. You can ask your own questions and embed them manually. But what we find really drives the scale is our offering to run both, you know, 
polls from a library of a million polls that we've already run and auto-generated questions and contextually automatically integrate them in the right article in the right spot. So publishers basically just integrate a one-line JavaScript uh, attack on the sites and everything else happens pretty automatically, including uh, the data transfer into DNP and CRM and capturing the sign-ups. So it's a one-click shop, essentially. For and, and you mentioned... You mentioned uh, joint controllers. So what data rights do you retain on the user data? We retain rights to, to, to process and we're jointly liable. We do not sell data. We contractually make sure that no publisher's data will be separately used by us. So the commercial rights are solely with the publisher. But you mentioned, I just want to make sure I understand. You mentioned a moment ago that you were using the experience of all the previous surveys to help serve the surveys. So what sort of data do you retain to enable that sort of thing? That's mostly contextual data. So we uh, run contextual data and then the collectivized engagement rates. So our models ingest how well does a poll with this uh, linguistic components perform in an article about that. The engagement rate from prior polls, from millions of prior polls that we run collectively, helps us achieve that engagement rate of 10 to 20%. Individual user-level data, the first-party cookies, those remain entirely to the publisher. Great. Okay, well, uh, one last question. Um, if your startup, your company was an animal, what animal would it be? That is a great question I've never thought about. Somehow I'm thinking about a uh, tiger, but I'm lacking the right reason. <laughs> I just like tigers. Every, and we're just lions like, and tigers are everyone's <laughs> default. Everyone, That's what everyone says when they can't think of another one. Fine, then panda. We're a panda. We are, uh, I don't know, kind, smart, uh, whatever. Yeah, panda it is. <laughs> All right. Panda, you got it here. All right. Well, Cornelius, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Ari. Speak soon. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.